0: Hey, it's Flavs, and this is Climate Changers, a podcast where we celebrate the heroes who are on the front lines of creating a new and sustainable resource and energy economy. Today, it is my honor to have as my guest, Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org and a prolific author who offered humanity one of the very first warnings about climate change. Bill has been awarded the Gandhi Prize, the Thomas Merton Prize, and the Right Livelihood Prize. Foreign policy named him one of the 100 most important global thinkers, and the Boston Globe has said he's probably America's most important environmentalist. Hi, Bill. Welcome to the show. Ryan, a pleasure to be with you, man. You wrote The End of Nature, the first book on climate change for a general audience at a time when the science around climate was still evolving. Since then, you've said that we've won the argument but are losing the fight. What does that mean? <laughs>
1: I thought naively that we were engaged in an argument about climate change, and that once that was settled, our leaders would go to work. And so, you know, we kept writing books and producing articles and having symposiums. And by sometime like 1995, the world scientists were in firm agreement about what was going on. So the argument was over, but we weren't winning the fight because it turned out the fight wasn't about data and reason and evidence. The fight, as per usual, was about money and power. The other side had plenty of that, the fossil fuel industry. So that's when I think some of us began kind of gearing up to try and build the sort of movements that could take on uh, that wealth and power. And that's really what we've been about these last 15 years or so.
0: Although it seems like a lifetime ago, it really wasn't that long ago that we were celebrating how Greta's Friday demonstrations had grown into an international movement. But because people could no longer gather, these mass mobilization efforts have been canceled. And during that time, the Trump administration has cut to the bone, for example, loosening auto emission standards and ramping up construction of the Keystone Pipeline. What kinds of nonviolent civil disobedience and collective action can we use now to fight back while in isolation? Good questions.
1: People are learning how to do more of this virtually. And you know, there was a remarkable Earth Day live 72-hour webcast on Earth Day and things. And those are good. They're not a substitute. And I think the thing that's hardest about them is that they tend to draw in people who already agree with you. And there's less chance of just you kind of making this sort of noise out in the world that attracts new voices. But we're doing what we can right now. And I think actually, probably the pandemic is going to do some very, well, I don't know. There's no silver lining to a pandemic. But if you're going to go through this kind of trauma, you might as well learn some things. And I have a feeling that we're learning some things. If you wanted me to list them, I'd say, one, everybody's getting a crash course in reality is real. Doesn't matter that you spend your life on Instagram. (laughs) Biology still rules. No sense trying to tell the COVID microbe what to do. It tells you what to do. Stand six feet apart. No sense trying to tell the carbon dioxide molecule what to do. It tells you what to do. Burn less coal and gas and oil. Second thing we're learning is, if you're going to move, move fast. You know, the countries that flattened the curve fast, they're doing reasonably, relatively well with this thing. The ones like us that screwed around and put it off and didn't get to it, we're getting clobbered. Same with climate change. You know, if we'd flattened the carbon curve 30 years ago, if we put a modest price on carbon, we'd be in a whole different place now. Third lesson, social solidarity really matters. You know, I've lived my lifetime in the shadow of Ronald Reagan and the idea that markets would solve all problems. Reagan used to get his biggest laughs by saying, Oh, the scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. But those aren't. I mean, the scariest words in the English language are, We've run out of ventilators. Or, Sorry, but, you know, your house just burned down in a massive wildfire. Those are the kind of problems you only can solve when you work together. And so that's what we need to be doing.
0: As we talk about the government then, with the government stimulating the economy at levels we haven't seen since the Great Depression, is there an opportunity to apply finance and politics to demand serious climate action? Well, um,
1: I and- mean, there's every possibility that you could do it. We're just not doing it right now in the US because we have a you know buffoon who's in the pocket of the fossil fuel industry as president and a Senate that's you know pretty much the same. But if you look around the world, it's precisely how people are rising to this occasion. South Korea, Germany, Canada, they just set aside $2 billion in reconstruction money to get the guys who used to work in oil fields to go cap the abandoned oil wells that litter Saskatchewan and Alberta. So, you know, there's plenty of things you could be doing now. We're not doing them politically in the U.S., and I guess we won't be at least through November. Maybe then things will change. On the financial side, we're making some real progress, pulling the sort of big financial lever. The big investment houses and banks are beginning, it feels like, to shift some in the wake of all the activism that's gone on. We got a sign last week when Chase Bank, the biggest fossil fuel lender on Earth, after enormous pressure, decided to remove Lee Raymond, the former CEO of Exxon, as their lead director of their board. That was a big signal to Wall Street that we're not going to fool around with the climate
0: crisis much longer. What could a good stimulus for the energy sector look like?
1: It's no secret what we need to do. We need to massively build out renewable energy because it's gotten cheap and so it's completely possible to ramp it up fast. Uh, So that would be job one. And the good news is it takes a lot of bodies to do it. And it looks like we're going to have a lot of bodies in need of work.
0: And as we look at that transition, you've talked about solar panels as one of the two most impactful inventions of the 20th century. And there's no question that wind and solar are cost competitive. But with oil all of a sudden so cheap, has oil taken away part of that competitiveness?
1: I think it's a little unclear. It feels like, I mean, yeah, so like there's some, be some temptation for everybody looking at $1. 70 a gallon gasoline to go buy SUVs. On the other hand, the oil industry is really cratered by all of this, too. And their idea that they're going to keep expanding or building new pipelines or you know whatever seems completely quixotic now. I mean, who's going to put up the money for that? I think it's not completely clear how it's going to play out. I mean, the International Energy, energy Agency said last week they thought oil demand around the world would fall 9% this year and renewable energy growth would be about 10%. I think, my guess is, what I've been writing is, 2019 probably marks peak petroleum demand on planet Earth. And it's a decline from here on in, and the question is how fast that decline will be. I think in some ways the most important part, Ryan, may be that as the oil industry grows less profitable, its political clout diminishes. And as its political clout diminishes, its ability to hold
0: off renewable energy also diminishes. Domestic fracking seems wholly uneconomic in this world of $20 oil. What are your thoughts about that?
1: I think they've said that the whole fracking enterprise taken as a whole from the beginning has yet to make any money. And most of that was at you know $50 and $60 barrel oil. So yeah, my guess is uh, not a lot of people going into the fracking business right now.
0: While it's hard to find any silver linings to the Trump administration pulling out of the Paris Agreement, it did cause a number of corporations and local governments to take their own action. What is the importance of November's election in cementing that progress and laying a new foundation for American leadership on climate?
1: Well, look, if Trump wins re-election, I find it hard to imagine how we get climate action on an international scale in the time that we have. I mean, I find that a little hard to imagine in any event, but I find it impossible to imagine with Trump in the driver's seat. If he loses, and if we get a sort of renewed American commitment on these things, then we probably are in a place where we could make some fairly rapid progress. I mean, the price of renewable energy has come down so far that that's no longer a barrier. Technology and economics are not barriers. Vested interest and inertia are barriers, and those can be overcome.
0: The battle against climate change all too often becomes a battle between red versus blue. What can we do to make climate more of a bipartisan issue like terrorism or the economy?
1: In partisan terms, it's difficult because basically the fossil fuel industry, people like the Koch brothers, our biggest oil and gas barons, basically purchased one of our political parties. So it's difficult to keep it from being a partisan thing at this point. Not that it had to be. you know, Traditionally, environmentalism was actually a fairly bipartisan thing in America. But there are parts of this that do appeal broadly. People across the political spectrum, Democrats, independents, Republicans, really like renewable energy. It pulls super high with all groups. I think Republicans like the, you know, my house is my castle, I don't have to depend on anyone part. And I think liberals like the, uh, we're all in the warmth of the sun, you know, hippie vibe. That's all right. (laughs) Different strokes, it works. I think that's one of the places where there really is possibility for some agreement.
0: As we prepare for a new normal and are released from isolation, how can we lay the groundwork to come out of this stronger as individual climate warriors and also to create a movement that is fiercer and more organized than where we left off pre-COVID?
1: I think that people are going to be more attuned to reality (laughs) and less willing to accept nonsense from our leaders because they've begun to understand just how practically dangerous nonsense is. My guess is that we're going to worry a little bit less about growth in our economy and more about security and stability and safety. And those are messages that resonate really well with environmental protection and planning. So we shall see.
0: I've heard you say as you're building your organization, 350.org, you were holding on to a URL, 450.org. Could you talk <laughs> a little bit about the significance of the number 350 in your mobilization around? Well, climate? we thought
1: that we were going to be 450.org because in the time, that's what people thought the red line was, the most carbon you could safely have in the atmosphere. That was the conventional wisdom. To be sure, I asked Jim Hansen our greatest climate scientist, and he and his team went and did a kind of study and published. He called me and said, well, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is we got a number for you. The bad news is it's a lot lower than, than you'd want. They said 350 parts per million CO2 was the most you could safely have in the atmosphere. That was scary because we were already past it then and we're further past it now, but that doesn't change its reality. That's where we have to aim and push for If you go to the doctor and your cholesterol is too high, the doctor doesn't change the cholesterol charts to compensate for your mistakes.
0: He just tells you, good work, dude. You've been in this battle for a while. Where do you get your optimism and what gives you hope for the future?
1: I try hard not to think too much about optimism and pessimism. (laughs) I just get up and figure out how much trouble I can cause the fossil fuel industry on a given day. I am moved though by watching the rapid continuing growth of this movement. When we started, there was very little. And some of us sort of tried to will the whole thing into being. And now that we see the Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion and Greta and the 10,000 Gretas scattered across the planet who are the greatest youth organizers you could imagine. Now that we see that, it gives me great heart.
0: Well, Bill, thank you for your lifetime of writing, community building, and activism. The climate fight owes much of its strength to your leadership. And thank you for joining this episode of Climate Changers.
1: Ryan, just thank you very, very much. This is a real pleasure, and what you're doing is awfully important.
0: Every episode of Climate Changers has a call to action posted in the show notes. Each call to action has been curated to make it easy for you to help create the changes that we discussed today. Thank you for joining Climate Changers. Until next time.